0: Now about eleven years ago, I sat down at church. It was my first Sunday in full-time ministry. Uh, I'd done my first morning setup, and I've basically never really stopped since. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I didn't know the church very well. I just started working there. I went and sat down next to somebody that I didn't know, uh, which is always good isn't it? on a Sunday to, to go and sit next to someone you don't know. So I said hello. I explained that I was the new ministry trainee, and it turned out that the woman I was speaking to was a visitor as well. Now, the meeting went really well, great Bible teaching on Luke, I think it was. And after the meeting, the woman turned to me, and instead of the normal church banter after the meeting, she said, what do you think it meant in John's Gospel when it says that Jesus was the Logos? And I thought, wow, this is really, you know, straight into it, isn't it? Full on. And uh, I said, I think it means he's the word. And she, (laughs) she laughed at me. And for the next 20 minutes, I found myself baffled. Uh, As this woman just sort of listed off a load of theology, I felt so embarrassed. I felt like I knew nothing. And I just said, oh, you know, I'm a ministry trainee. I'm thinking about going into ministry. (laughs) Now, she was convinced that the Bible wasn't true. Uh, She was laughing at me as an evangelical. But I found myself floundering to respond. I really didn't know anything about what she was talking about. She was using all this sort of stuff to dismiss Jesus. And I didn't know how to answer. I was truly baffled. So my goal this evening, as we look into what it means that Jesus is the word, is not to baffle you. That's not the plan. Uh, If that's what happens, come and have a word with me afterwards. But I do want to stretch you a bit this evening. Uh, I've gone a bit fast the past few weeks, so I'm going to try and slow it down uh, for us this evening. But the goal, if you remember, of us looking into the different names of Jesus is that we love him better. We know him better. And that's the goal this evening, even as we look at all these different theological things... What I want us to do is love and know the Lord Jesus better. So it's my prayer that we'll understand this evening just how amazing the Lord Jesus is, that he is the word. So first of all, then, that scary word, logos. Logos. What does it mean? Well, it means word. So we had it, you know, the word in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh. That word is is logos. But it's more than just word. It's from the word lego. Uh, which, <laughs> you know, it's funny though, it does sort of link, it means to collect or to organise originally. So you can sort of see why that would work with Lego, sort of putting things together. And because of that original meaning before it came to mean word, it's got several different meanings, there's several different ways that you can look at it. The first one is thought. So it's not just spoken word, but it's thought. So we say in English, don't we, about collecting your thoughts. And that's the idea, really, with that word. It's the collection of thoughts that we have in our head before we speak them. Ideas that we form in our minds. That, in Greek, could be that same word, logos. The idea of collecting thoughts together, words before you speak them. It can also have that meaning of words that you speak. And it's passed into English that way. So wherever you get a word that ends in log, generally, it's it's to do with words, isn't it? So, decalogue, ten, ten words. Dialogue, monologue. All those things are taking that word logos, and they've sort of brought them into English. So it's the idea of the spoken word, speaking out uh, words and ideas. The next way that it's used, though, sometimes is reason. It's where we get our word logic from, and logical. And it's the idea, again, of something that's well-ordered and collected. Do you see? It's something that's reasonable. So something that you collect together in a, in a logical way. So sometimes in the Bible, when that word is used, it's translated reasonable. So, you know, this is your reasonable worship or your reasonable service in Romans 12. It's the logical thing to do. Are you with me so far? Okay. It gets a bit more complicated because different people used it in different ways. So Greek philosophers, they started to use it in quite a complicated way. They saw it as the idea of logic, but the logic behind the universe the sort of principle underlying everything a, a sort of early version of the theory of everything so they saw the logos as the power of, of direction and organization behind the universe sort of ordering things the stoics who were greek philosophers they thought of it in a bit more a, a sort of organic sense like the soul of the world the mind of the world and they used that same word logos The Jews who sort of had some Greek influences started to use it in similar ways as well. So there's a man called Philo, or Philo, I never know how to to, uh, pronounce it. But he saw the Logos as the sort of mediator between God and man. So he's something in between. Some used it as a a word for the angel of the Lord. And it's the same idea, really, of needing some sort of mediation between God and people. Uh, So God is seen as unapproachable in, in Greek thought. So you need some sort of mediation in between. So that's basically, that's a, that's a really quick sort of rough guide to how different people used it. So I know the question you're thinking, well which is it? When it says Jesus is the Logos, what does it mean? Well firstly, I'm, I'm not going to say that they're all mutually exclusive. You'll see that some ideas overlap, don't we? And it needn't be that John, when he uses it in different books, or, or here in John, has only one idea in his head when he uses it. Indeed, he may have used it because it can be used in a variety of ways. But in the end, if we really want to understand what he means, then the way that God has given us to know is the word itself, the Bible. If we really want to know, it's no good really looking at Greek philosophers. Actually, we need to understand what it uh, meant in the Bible. So as much as we can be stumped by Stoics and befuddled by philosophers, in the end, God has given us something sure, hasn't he? His word. So we'll see how the word uses the word word, if that's too many words. Uh, In other words, what does the Bible actually say? So that's our second point, the word in the Bible. Now, the word, uh, the word word, (laughs) as applied to Jesus, um, is only used three times in the Bible. In John, uh, which we just had read before. In 1 John verse 1, though some people dispute that's actually about Jesus. And in Revelation 19, uh, verse 13, we'll read those in a few minutes' time. But actually, to get a grasp on what we mean by the word, we don't want to start really in the New Testament, but we want to start right back in the Old Testament, don't we? What does it mean when the New Testament says word? Well, it's picking up on what the Old Testament says. And it starts right back there in Genesis 1, doesn't it? So if you've got Genesis 1, that's that's the easy one to find, isn't it? Normally... Normally not on page one, though. Then we'll put it on page three or something like that. Right back in Genesis. And you'll notice that the words that John used in John 1 echo the same, uh, the same words from Genesis 1, don't they? So Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So when John starts his Gospel, he deliberately begins it in the same way as Genesis 1. He wants us to point point us right back to what was happening there. And he uses some of the same words and ideas, doesn't he? The ideas of light coming into the world. Life. And in the same way, it carries the same idea of speaking. Do you notice there in Genesis, God speaks the world into existence. He uses words to create the world. So what we see in Genesis 1 is the word of God creating the world. And we get that same image in John, don't we? The word of God creates the world. So if you flip back over to John... That's one of the first things that were told about him, isn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, he's saying here that the Word is the agent of creation. The Word was what was used to create the universe. And this makes a bit more sense when you know that the Logos can be spoken or unspoken so it doesn't have to be that the word is only created as God speaks because actually we're told in John aren't we that God uh, had the word there before the beginning in the beginning the word was already there there was never a time when he was not so the word existed within God before it was spoken but now at creation the word is spoken and is used to create the world so the same logos but now expressed it's a bit like if you think about an architect, sort of looking at a plot of land and imagining a building there. And he's got it in his mind before he puts it down on paper. Always there is the Logos, always part of God, distinct from God, yet part of God. Now spoken, now expressed, now revealed. That's what we start to see when we compare uh, Genesis with John. And the amazing thing that we read in John Wood is not just that this Logos was spoken, that this word was spoken... But that this word became flesh. See that down there in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. The word of God here became a human being. He was born as a babe in Bethlehem. Now that would have been completely unpalatable for the Greek philosophers. The whole point of them for the Logos was this idea that it was above and behind creation. The idea of the Logos entering creation and becoming part of the material world would have been ridiculous for them. Having said that, is it any less shocking that God himself would become a man? Actually, that God would come into this world in the person of Jesus? Well, of course he did. But it is shocking, isn't it, if you think about it, that God, who created the world, would become a man, a babe in Bethlehem. But why would he do that? Why does he become flesh in John? What's the significance of the Word becoming flesh? Why not the Son becoming flesh? Well, he came into the world to save the world. That's definitely true, isn't it? But here, the emphasis seems to be that he came into the world to reveal himself to the world. All the way through the Bible, God reveals himself. By his word to his people. We see it starkly uh, in quotes like this from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 3.21, no need to turn to it. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself by his word. It's even called an appearing here, almost as though you could see. But it's by his word. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us, so that God could be made known. Have a look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the word becomes flesh to reveal God. That the invisible God might somehow become visible to us. That we might behold him in the face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, as God's word here in John, is to do with him being the revealer of God. One who allows us to see God and makes him known. Now the second passage that we have, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheet. uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That's got a similar idea, also written by John. And you'll notice there are similar words really in this section than there are uh, in John chapter 1 as well. So 1 John 1, 1 1-4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So do you notice again the similar language there to to John chapter 1 isn't there? There's the beginning. There's life. There's light. There's the word. Now there are some good people who dispute that this is about Jesus. They say that the word of life as it talks about it here is the gospel. But I think on balance that really it is speaking about the Lord Jesus. He is the one that they saw, that they heard, that they touched. It seems very physical, doesn't it? It seems more natural and consistent as well to say that this is Jesus that they're talking about. Because it's used in the same way by John in the other passage as well. But why use the phrase word of life? Well it's used in Philippians by Paul to mean the gospel that we hold on to. And that we hold out to other people. It's called the word of life there because it's life bringing. It brings life to people. And the same is true of Jesus' word of life. Who has life in himself. But is also the great bringer of eternal life. And that's what's noted in the 1 John passage isn't it? They proclaim eternal life that comes through Jesus. He's the revelation of that eternal life even. An everlasting life that could not be destroyed. The one who rose from the dead as we will do as well. So he's the revelation of that life. And he's also the one that brings it. He's the word of life. So it's to do with revelation but a bit more specific in one John. Now the last passage is a little bit different. Uh, Revelation 19, uh, 11 to 16. Uh, That's also on the back of your notice sheets you're a Johnny Cash fan, you'll notice this is quoted in one of his songs. I, actually, I was actually preparing this in a coffee shop this week and they started playing it in the background. It's brilliant. Revelation 19, uh, 11 to 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of god and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen pure uh, white and pure were following him on white horses for his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A bit different from the other ones, isn't it? It's still John writing this. But here we have Jesus as a mighty conqueror on a horse. And his name is given as the word of God. And at first that might seem a little bit out of place, a sort of tag-on line. But the more I've thought about it, the more I've realised that this fits exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, we conquer by the word of God. It's always linked with the testimony about Jesus, always put in parallel together. So I'll just list these off to you. Revelation 1 verse 2. Who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and and the testimony of Jesus. Same in Revelation 6 verse 9. seven, Same in Revelation 20 verse 4. It's always the word of God and the testimony. Well here in this one time we have them mingled together. Uh, we have him uh, uh, in verse uh, verse 13. Uh, he is clothed in a, a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. So it's saying that. Um, uh, sorry. Sorry. That's not the way it's mingled together. Sorry, Revelation 12, uh, verse 11 is where it's mingled together. And it said, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. How do you conquer in the book of Revelation? You conquer by the word of their testimony, the word of God. And the word of Jesus here conquers, just as Jesus the word conquers. In fact, we see his kingdom come across the world as his word advances, if you like. It's like the word going forth. So think Acts so Acts nineteen, verse twenty. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of God goes forward. The word conquers. That's why it's the sword of the Spirit. That's why that's our offensive weapon in evangelism. One which can reach right inside people, one which can pierce the heart. Well, here is Jesus as the mighty word of God, sat on a horse like a conqueror. Indeed, earlier in Revelation, when we had that white horse, in Revelation 6 verse 2, it came out conquering and to conquer. But here we have Jesus sat on the white horse, the mighty word of God, with his own word issuing from his mouth, striking down the nations. The word of God, Jesus, conquering by the word of God, the Bible. So Jesus rules, judges and conquers, not by earthly weapons, but by his word. He is the word, isn't he? So in John, and in 1 John, it's about revelation. In Revelation, it's about Jesus, the mighty, powerful, conquering word of God. So those are how we see it in the New Testament. God revealing himself, but also we see it as the mighty word of God going forth. Well, to finish with, I was going to originally have the Word of God in the Trinity. That's why you've got that there. I read a few um, dozen pages of Augustine uh, Augustine on it and decided that it wasn't for tonight, especially for a third point. Uh, so um, we're going to look at the Word and the Word. Uh, how do those two fit together? Um, so What can we learn from the other about the other? So I want to just note three similarities to close from the things we've seen. Um that help us understand both words of God. Word of God, Jesus. Word of God, the Bible. So three similarities. The first one, which we've seen this evening already, is that both are about God's revelation to the world. Both are about God revealing himself to people. So if we want to see what God is like, we must look at the word. His word, the Son, who makes the Father known, and his word, the Bible, that God has given us, that we might know him. We cannot know God without his word. It's the way that God has made himself known, so we need to go to the word. The second similarity that we've seen between the two is that they are both man and God and nonetheless for being both. They're both man and God and nonetheless for being both. So with Jesus, he was both fully God and fully man. His manhood did not detract from his deity, from his godness. His deity, his godness, did not detract from his manhood. He was fully both, fully God and fully man. Similarly, the word of God, the Bible, is both human and divine. Yes, it has human authors. But that does not detract from its divine authorship. And its divine authorship does not flatten out its human authors. So as you read the Bible, you can spot Paul, can't you? You can spot John there. But more importantly, you can spot God, can't you? You can discern God's word there. So we have no need to be embarrassed about the human authors of the Bible any more than the humanity of Christ. We don't believe that the Bible fell from the sky one day, only appearing to have been written by a man. Nor do we believe that Jesus only appeared to be a man. He really was a man. The word became flesh. So the word, uh, both words are man and God, and nonetheless were being both. And then thirdly, linked with this, they're both inculturated. I thought I'd made up a word, inculturated, like in a culture. Then I googled it, and actually it's a real word. Uh, So (laughs) it shows you about the English language, doesn't it? They're both inculturated. So as human and divine, both existed and exist in a culture, the Bible is not what the Koran claims to be. It's not separate from all cultures. It's not written in a divine language that it must remain in. And in fact, what you see with Islam as is it goes round with the Koran is that it actually imposes sort of monoculture on its adherents, a sort of 16th century Arabian culture. But the Bible's words were written into situations and cultures. And again, that doesn't make them any less than the word of God. It makes them real words to real people. It might make it a little bit harder for work for us as we try and apply them to our culture. But the Bible actually shows us that that's the right way to go, applying it to our culture. Because actually the Bible itself applies itself to different cultures and different situations. And its variety (laughs) of cultures and situations shows us that we can apply the Bible into different cultures. We can translate the Bible into different languages. That's okay. The Bible itself is written in three different languages. So it shows us the transcultural nature, the the one that transcends culture of the Bible. Because actually the Bible is to go to the ends of the earth, isn't it? It doesn't belong to one culture and one period of time. It belongs to all. We're able to take it to the ends of the earth because we know it's enculturated. We know that it's actually part of a culture, but we can... Uh, take it to other cultures from that. And similarly, Jesus himself was was that. He was a Middle Eastern Jewish male. He wore Middle Eastern Jewish male clothes. He spoke the language of his day, Aramaic, probably a few others too. He came to a specific culture and was able to live within that culture. He didn't affirm everything, but that didn't stop him sort of contextualising himself, if you like, into his world. And again, there's a lesson for us that being part of our culture itself is not a problem. So long as we challenge the unbiblical parts of our culture. The problem is that actually when we're in that culture, it's really hard to see which of the bits we should challenge and which are the bits that are OK. But the Bible actually being written to a different culture helps us see that. It doesn't have the same hang-ups that we do. It doesn't have the same problems that we have. So they, the Bible is not bound by our cultural norms, So the Bible should say things to us that shock us and shock our culture. It should say things to us that make us challenge our assumptions and our sort of inbuilt cultural bias. Because it's not written to our culture or with our culture. So these three similarities, they sort of help us understand and and are able for us to take away tonight. But I want to say they do point us to three things for ourselves though as we close. The first thing is that God wants us to know him. He hasn't hidden himself. He has spoken. More than that, his word has become flesh. Jesus lived among us to reveal God to us, to make him known to us. So God wants to know us. And that should be an encouragement to us this evening if we want to know God or we want to know God more. Because Jesus is the word, because the word has been made flesh, God is not playing hide and seek with us this evening. God is not being timid. God wants us to know him. God wants us to know him better. And Jesus, as God's word, shows us that. Secondly, God wants us to know him through Jesus. We don't have a relationship with a book. We have a relationship with a person. The pinnacle of what God has given us is Jesus. That's what it suggests in Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Similar language to John 1 and 1, isn't it? But uh, actually, it means that if we want to know God, if we want a relationship with God, we have to go to the son, his word. We can't bypass the son and get to the father. If we want the father, we have to have the son. We can't bypass the son and go to the spirit. Actually, God has revealed himself to us through his son. So, in fact, we want to have a relationship with all three, don't we? But the way we do that is through the son enabled by the spirit. But because Jesus is the word, we must go through him. He's the God-ordained way to have fellowship with all three. He is how we see the invisible God. And then finally, the word and the word are joined together. That's something that we need to take away. The word and the word are joined together. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. We mustn't play off the words against each other. You know, oh, well, we're a Bible church. Oh, well, we're a Jesus church. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Bible church, you will be a Jesus church. And if you are a Jesus church, you will be a Bible church. The Bible is about Jesus, all of it. I never tire saying of that, even if you tire hearing of it, perhaps. (laughs) But the whole Bible is about Jesus. So if we're a Bible church, we'll be a Jesus church. Because that's what we see in the Bible. And if we're serious about knowing Jesus, then we have to read his word. That's what he's left us, along with his spirit. So if you want to find out about Jesus, the best book to read is the Bible. <laughs> so that's for my boys i have been singing that all afternoon. best book is it's the only book really to go to, isn't it? It's the only sure place we have. So if we're a Jesus church, we'll be a Bible church as well. And if you think about it, that's great news, isn't it? If Jesus hadn't left us his word, how could we know him? How could he reveal himself to us in a real and true way? Reading of Jesus is not a second-hand spiritual experience. It's not sort of a lower level. You read about the word in the word. And that's the way he wants it. Otherwise, you'd have had to have lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, And you'd have to live in a particular part of the world just to get to know him. But God has given us the word and he's joined the word and the word together. And when we don't join the words together, we risk losing both, don't we? If we won't look into the Bible to know Jesus, then we'll never know him. If we don't look for Jesus in the Bible, then we'll never know him. And our Bible reading will become dry and lifeless. But put the two together and we can know the word through his word the bible we won't be left baffled by him but we'll know him personally so please don't be baffled by jesus get to know him through his word recognizing that he is the word word of the father exalted for us and that's the theme of our last song we're going to sing that in a moment but just take a minute just to think through what we've heard this evening perhaps in quiet and then we'll sing uh, the last song together